Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, Anderson, to hear Bob Woodward go through uh, the agonizing of whether or not he should have written what he did at the end of the book... Uh, is a little bit of a metaphor for just what a trying time this is for journalists and everybody processing our politics and, frankly, our culture. All that he told you tonight, I listen to every moment. What shocks you most about this dynamic of this book and what was said and what was heard? I, I'm not sure that, you know, to, I, to me, the it just it confirms a lot of stuff that we have been covering for a great deal of time in a very, to hear the president's own voice sort of confirming all this stuff that, that we have been been covering. I, you know, the, the downplaying of the virus and then tonight to have him, you know, on a town hall at ABC, I think it was, saying, oh no, I, I you know, I never downplayed the virus. If anything, I, I upplayed it. I mean, these are things with, we've all reported on and seen in real time. But, you know, to have the kind of level of detail that Bob has in the book um, from all these different people, uh, but from the president himself, you know, I think it's it's that to me is what's was most compelling. Compelling is a good word. I wonder how compelling Woodward's book is. Now, that's a uh, question's going to have two premises, right? One is, well, can anybody be compelled? And if you have people who have open minds is what they heard come out of the president's own mouth going to be suggestive of something different than they thought going into it? Mm. I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I, I you know, I, I think, you know, the lines seem pretty clearly drawn uh, for a lot of people in, in this country. So I'm not sure how many people there are on a fence uh, to be swayed one way or another. Um, but I think it's, you know, it's, it's fascinating to have the information out there. And, you know, look, we're in this business. We believe in getting as much as many facts out there and, you know, on all sides of an issue and letting viewers make up their own minds about, you know, what they want to do with those facts. Yeah. You know, he mentioned Carl Bernstein, obviously his famous reporting partner. Uh, We were going through our own reporting exercise here once and I was saying to him, you know, we have all the facts here, Carl, but, you know, I don't know. Uh, whether or not this is, you know, this is going to be enough for people when they're hearing this. He said, it's not the job. You can tell people what's true. You cannot make them believe mm. what is true. People will believe what they want to believe. And that's exactly what this president is banking on. Mm. I got to tell you, Anderson, this was helpful tonight. You did your job uh, in beautiful fashion for our audience. And I appreciate it. It was helpful to me. Thank you, brother. Sorry I ran over a minute into your show. Please, you should have taken the whole show. (laughs) What matters more than this? I can't get enough of you. Get home to Wyatt. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. We now have two hard truths to deal with. The first, we just heard Anderson with Bob Woodward. He made it clear the president is aware and has always been aware of what is going on with this pandemic, the danger, how quickly it could spread. And he is only really concerned with his own political fate, not yours. 
He wants credit for a situation that was made worse by his inaction. He upplayed it, he just said. He didn't downplay it. It matters that he screwed up even the language. There is no upplaying. There is playing it up. Also what? He can't even make up an answer that makes sense. That's why I point out the distinction. Stopping travel to China still allowed over 40,000 people into this country from China. And the point is, the virus had already moved to Europe by then and was coming here by then, okay, by the time he made the move. Now, look, if you need to hear this, hear it. Doing the restriction with China, doing the restriction with Europe by most metrics and most people involved made sense. They were good moves. Some on the left didn't like it, saw it as xenophobia. Now, I don't believe that's fair criticism of Biden. I don't think he was speaking specifically about the moves when you look at the record, but he'll have to explain that for himself. So they were good moves, but they weren't enough. And they did not mean he didn't have to do what was needed here, specifically with testing. It's the only way we know what's happening with the virus. It did not make it okay, the China and Europe move, for him to tell people, forget the masks, go out, eat, live your life, reject your governors, all their pleas to stay home for a while, forget it. He knew better. His inaction and his action helped make cases increase. His job is to protect us. He's protecting himself. How? How does that protect him? Because he didn't want the pandemic to be a reality that would push down the economy. That's why he said to Bob Woodward, you really think the pandemic supersedes the economy? That's your answer. He will play down a pandemic because he wants to keep what is good for him in your mind, even though it had already been brought down by it. They're connected. A little bit. No, more than a little bit. Yeah, you're right. That's Trump. Yeah, you're right. He knows it's right. He wants 200,000 dead to be seen as a success. My simple suggestion is the same every time he says that. Tell the victims' families that 200,000 dead is a success. Here's our second hard truth. We got to see the real picture of what's happening and where this virus is and where it isn't. You know, I mean, we all talk about the virus all the time. You probably have a pretty decent sense of how many cases there are. Maybe even a good ballpark on deaths. I just told you it's about 200,000. But you don't really know where it is and where it isn't and who it is and where and why. This matters. We don't deal with the reality. You want the reality? Here it is. Look. Look at the map. It's not all red anymore. What does that mean? It means that only a handful of states are getting worse. Good. Reality is good. No. No, it's not good. And here's why. And this is what isn't told to you enough. It's not burning around because it is mostly leveled out. But think about what that means. Plateauing at a certain case flow. If water is still coming into a boat, but it is slowing down at the rate it's coming in, are you not sinking anymore? We're still sinking. You'll notice on this map, keep it up, please. Only a few states are actually coming down. I mean, that's what has to happen. Cases have to come down for us to be able to live the way we want to. How much? I'll get to that in a second. 
The idea that almost 35,000 people testing positive since yesterday, like when you hear that, oh, it's pretty good news. It's less than it was. I'm telling you, that's more about us getting tired of the reality than the reality getting better. In late July, we were up around 60,000 a day. So is that better? Yeah, but we're still sinking. Would we ever say that about death? 772 American deaths a day. Well, that's better. Better than it was. Tell the families. They died of a virus that you can control by staying home and with a mask? All these other countries that have none of our resources, none of our supposed national resolve, our strength, our character, they did it better? The reality is we've just hit another plateau. We're not actually bringing cases down. That's the reality. And why? Trump, no. This is not going to be settled by left and right. It's going to be about what's reasonable. The real area, look, here's the hard truth. The reason we've plateaued is you and me, depending on where we live, depending on what we've been asked. Too many of us are not doing what we were asked as long as we were asked to do it. We're still around. Take a look. 60% of those asked to mask up complying. So if you're only at 60%, what do you think is going to happen? You're only going to get at best 60% of what you wanted, right? Now, it's not apples to apples like that. It's more complicated. And in fact, you'd have to be up at 100% really just to help yourself in any real way for cases to go down. And none of these moves were ever meant to be permanent. Nobody would stand for that. If communities stepped up, cases came down, they got to start doing things again. In the places where restrictions have lingered is because the percentage of positive cases has stayed up. That's what I want you to think about. I used to tell you hospitalizations, hospitalizations. Yes, obviously, you're in the hospital. I mean, you're sick. I mean, how sick do you have to be to get to the hospital? I was pretty sick. I never even had to go to the hospital. Thank God. The percentage of positive cases, that's what you have to pay attention to because that's the main metric that's going to control our future. So I said earlier, but how low does it have to be? We're never going to get to zero, right? I mean, what, what, what makes sense? That's the right question. And we don't really know. The WHO sets the threshold at 5%. Can you do that slower? Can that move slower or do it again? Um, all right, it moves at one speed. But I want you to, these are the rates for positive test percentages. All right, we're at 8%. All those other countries were much lower, right? Percentage of the tests that you do that are positive. So what will they do? They play with the testing. That's why they've always messed with the testing. That's why I've always been all over the testing, because that's the way to keep the truth from you. That's the way to control the reality. On a state-by-state -state basis, only half of our country is below the mark we need to meet. Four states are triple that benchmark. I'm telling you, they are lying to you about the reality in this country, and they're doing it for political advantage. The whole way we talk about where this disease is needs to change. We used to do it in an easy and obvious way. Regions, right? Because they were on fire one by one. It was in the Northwest, California, Oregon, Washington. Then it flew to the Northeast, New York, New Jersey. It was easy. In the summer, the Midwest, oh, now it's hitting the South. And that makes you think that once it bounces around everywhere, good. No. No. Now that the virus 
has done what it does, which is spread, right, anywhere, anyway, it's less about regions. It's more about specific communities or events that are going to exacerbate a situation and cause problems for a community. Like what? Like Sturgis. I mean, come on. Look, I love it. I love the cultural event of it. I love everything about it. Not everything, but I love most things about it. But what do you think is going to happen when you have something like this? And look, look how they celebrate Trump at a place like that. He is the mascot for disobeying what you're told to do about this virus. Large indoor campaign rally. I mean, masks, socially distance, wash your hands, don't do anything you don't need to. Trump. College campuses. Kids will be kids. If you put them there, they're going to do what they do. That's why we call them minors. But the reality is, from Ohio State to South Carolina, Iowa, Texas Tech, University of Wisconsin, we're talking about 60,000 new cases since August. And that's only looking at about a quarter of all colleges. And who knows how honest they're going to be. We rely on it. But look, institutions protect themselves. Power protects itself. So let's look at just kids, okay? Because this is another one that I think we're getting played on. And it wound up with a school situation that I personally find unacceptable, okay? Kids, what's the good news? They do not die like the rest of us from this virus, thankfully. We don't know why, but it's not happening. We know of 377 deaths for those 24 and younger. Look, my heart goes out in ways I, I can't even tell you for any family who's had a kid suffer with this, let alone pass from it. I am so sorry. I am in no way trying to minimize your pain. One is absolutely too many. Any parent who sees a child go uh, is something that I don't even know how you survive. But will we take way too much solace in that number. Death is not the measure of the problem. A lot of kids are getting sick. Kids can be asymptomatic and still transfer, be contagious to other people who are in danger. I was never near death, thank God, nor my wife, for real, thank God, or my son. But I'll tell you what, he was really sick on and off for a long time. Weird days of sleeping. We thought, oh, it's just because he's a teen. Doctors couldn't give us any answers. There's no medicine. There's nothing to do for him. He didn't feel right. He was an odd color. With time, he's gotten better. So how do you look at these things? That's not a, that's not a way you want to see your kid. You saw that parent last night with his little son, Eli, the genius. The kid has 100 fever for weeks. So now where do we get? Because we're all afraid of our kids, right? You and I would go back to work. I mean, I, I came back to work. I've been sick. I have the antibodies. I don't believe the antibodies mean I can't get sick again. I tell people that all the time. I don't believe it. The science is not completely there. It's suggestive, but not dispositive. I, I come and do the job. Why? The job matters. The job matters. I'm an adult. I'll make my own decisions. My kids, you got me with my kids. I'm not letting my kids do anything that I think is risky. So now we got messed up with school because I can't in good conscience have my kids go to school when I know they don't know what the hell they're doing. They don't have enough cases to test. They can't really monitor. They can't really control. And I don't trust them to be honest. We can't trust anybody to be honest in this situation, it seems. They keep lying to us. So because we didn't jump on testing, we didn't do what we needed to do. Now our kids are screwed. 
Some of the kids are back in school, but not enough. And a single case of COVID in a school is going to set this ripple effect of disruption. Why? Because they don't really know how to measure it in real time. K to 12, I can't even give you accurate numbers about what everything, what's going on. How? With our kids. It's all about the kids. Kids are our future. We care about them the most. We do everything for them. No, we didn't. Here's one thing that everybody agrees with. I'd like to see the schools open. They have to open. Yeah, I think schools have to open. Every time our president said this, I said the same thing. One word. How? Show them how. Give them the help with the testing. You have the CDC. You have the Defense Production Act emergency power. You have the pocket. You have the power. No, school's a local thing. This is an emergency. But they don't know how to track how many schools are having to close because of kids or teachers testing positive. We don't even know how to measure the failure. How did we how did we get to here? This isn't two weeks. All these big shots, all this money, all this talking, all this media. We can't even get our kids back in school. I don't even know as a matter of science that the kids shouldn't all be back in school. I could show you data and research from people around the world who say, look, you know what? Uh, based on this study and this and this, the kids are in there. They'll get sick, but it's not that bad. They can figure it. You have to be careful about who's at home and how that works, but you can figure it out. It's not going to be that much worse. I don't know that I believe that, but they're not giving us anything better here. And you know it. There's no way our kids can get back in school and we can get back to anything close to normal if we can't tell who has this damn thing in any kind of small window of time. Even when you account for population differences and the real-time infection rates in each state, as a nation, we're only doing a little over of 60% of the number of tests that we need. And we both know you're never gonna be able to test everybody all the time. You gotta test smart, but we're not doing that either. Only 11 states meet the target for how many tests they need to be doing. 11. Most of them are in the Northeast. You got Michigan, New Mexico, and Alaska in there. That's the other states that you see just so happens to line up pretty neatly with the places where the Harvard Global Health Institute says it's safe to start reopening schools, okay? Now, when you compare the United States to the rest of the world, the best we can say, and this is so embarrassing, we're not the worst. Yeah, we got the most cases. Yeah, we got the most deaths. But when you adjust that number for population, there are 10 countries in worse shape than us. You see them there? Is that who you see yourself being in company with when you talk about American excellence? America first? Is that the group you want to be in? A lot are in better shape than we are. And by the way, no disrespect to those countries. I'm talking about resources. I'm talking about capabilities. We have the best healthcare system capabilities in the world. Not how much we charge for it, not how much you get for your buck, not access. But our mortality rate is around middle of the pack in large part because we have extraordinary ability with our first responders to keep people alive here who would die somewhere else. Our positivity rate is at 14. That's the response. We're not all in. The next part of the equation is medicine. Look, let's bring in Chief Dr. Sanjay Gupta with us. The president said something tonight, brother. That is correct. He has 
pushed the vaccine at a rate of acceleration we have never seen. You and I both have sources on Operation Warp Speed. Uh, They say, this is the all-star team. We couldn't ask for better than this. We're getting everything we want. They threw money at us to go into production with this, and we feel pretty good about it. Now, that's all a fair assessment, is it not? Yeah, no, no question. I mean, I think the pace of medical innovation around this has been faster than anything I've seen before. Now, he is probably wrong, according to my sources, about when the people working on the vaccine will feel good about it getting out of phase three, especially uh, with this little setback they just had. I don't know that it's a little setback, but they have people who are getting sick in a way that they have to figure out why. Um, So let's say he's wrong about when it comes out because he wants to time it to the election. Of course he does. He wants everything about this to be geared to his advantage. A vaccine doesn't stop this virus for us. Even if we got the vaccine today, Sanjay, give me a hypothetical. We all have access to the vaccine today. All of us have access. What's the timeline look like? Well, um, first of all, you know, that that hypothetical is not that's not going to happen. You know, there's there's that's why it's called a hypothetical. There'd be tens of millions of. I understand, but ten, tens of millions of doses maybe by the end of the year. I think it, it's But it's I'm giving him the because, best case. Uh, if, you, if you had a single shot that you were given today and then probably need another shot in a month, uh, you would probably start to develop you know, significant immunity a few months after that. Uh, we don't know, as you pointed out earlier, how long that immunity lasts. So it's not going to be the, the flip of a switch when people get this vaccine. Um, it's, it's some, you know, for a period of time, people are still going to need to probably wear masks, physically distance. There may be some sense of being able to open up things that you wouldn't have otherwise opened up, but it's not, it's not the flip of a switch. And, and I get that it's a hypothetical again, but I just, I just want to really be clear that, you know, the idea, people say the vaccine's ready this fall. But I think what, what I've learned just talking to people over the last few weeks is that the general public really is not going to have access to this vaccine until the middle of next year. Mm-hmm. I just think it's important to set expectations clearly on this because so mm-hmm. many people just keep it's like the purple pill ad you see on television. I'll just take the purple pill. That'll take care of all my problems. This is not the purple pill. You know, this is something that that, you know, we, we are understandably should wait for to make sure it's safe and effective. And even then it may take time. There may be more than one shot. We may need to get it seasonally. And and, you know, there's a lot that goes into this 600 million syringes, Chris. Right. You're given two shots, 300 million people. That's 600 million syringes. That sounds like a small part of the equation. We got stymied by nasal swabs in this country. We've got to make sure that all those various components Mm -hmm. actually work as well. Now, and look, and here's the point. Um, Everything Sanjay says is right. I'm giving him a hard time because I want to push the argument because I want to make this point crystal clear to you. The vaccine is not the answer. It does not end the virus. The pandemic will not just go away. This is not a movie. So it is not acceptable as an answer for the president, because at the end of the day, I got the biggest thing right. We got the vaccine. It's not the biggest thing. But Mm -hmm. now where I'm confused is this, Doc. Masks. Uh, I just told people we're at about 60 percent of those who were asked stepping up and doing it. That's a problem. Uh, We had been told by Fauci several times that a national mask mandate would help. Uh, The IHME says that we flatlined at about that 60 percent. We need to be at 95 percent. But now... Fauci says, I don't know that a national mask mandate would work. What's going on here? Well, you know, I I think what he's saying is that 
that's not questioning the efficacy of masks. He's basically saying that unless the will of the people is in lockstep with, uh, you know, the, the, the authorities, it's just not going to work. I mean, how do you, how do you, how are you going to enforce this? Right. How much are you going to find them? What are you going to do? I mean, that's, I think, ultimately what he's saying is that, you know, I think there was the belief going back to July and even more recently when you say, hey, look, you get to be a part of a movement that saves 100,000 lives. All you do is put a couple of ear loops on and, and, and you get to save lives. And I think, I think people were surprised, including Fauci, that uh, a significant percentage of people said, I ain't going to do it. I'm still not going to do it. I don't want right. to be a part of that movement that saves lives. So I think his point is you got to have the will of the people and the authoritative action sort of in lockstep here. Sanjay, I love you. Thank you for helping us understand the reality. I appreciate right, it. Back at you. All right. You got it. I want to wait for Sanjay to leave. Um, here's why. We know why people are resistant to masks in this country. It makes no sense for people to be resistant to masks if they think it could help them and help them help other people. There's one reason, and it's the president telling them it was a joke, it's a hoax, this is the left, this is what they're trying to do. Do you remember how it started? Him saying, they're putting a mask on you to control your freedom of speech. Think how stupid an idea that is. And yet that's what he was pushing. And now, all of a sudden, we have a country like no other that is fighting masks on the basis of political principle. And you think he has nothing to do with that. He's the only one that has something to do with it. Why do you think he makes fun of Joe Biden's mask? Look, the vaccine is not the answer. This show from now until November is not going to be your daily check of who's going to win and who isn't. A lot of that is bullshit. All right. It just is. It's prognostication based on numbers that are a snapshot of a suggestion of a moment in time. The person that's going to win this race is the one who gets more people who believe in their message to the polls. That's the answer. What I want to give you here is the reality of what we're dealing with every damn day. Now, a big part of it's going to be testing. Our kids are not going to get back into schools until we start being able to read the right kinds of data. I have an expert who had to set up exactly that kind of system, who's looking at exactly what we need now and what isn't there and what the difference between the two things will mean for you and for me. Next. Fact, too many of our kids are not in school and too many of us are dealing with this suck of homeschool Zooming, which gives you a chance to be back in school. The second largest school district in America says it has a plan to fix that. What's the plan? What do you think? Regular testing and tracing for all 700,000 students and 75,000 employees and their families. That's always been the only way we were going to get back there. If we don't know, we can't trust. If we can't trust, we're not putting our kids in that situation. We both know it. Not if we can avoid it. Austin Butner is the L.A. superintendent. We have um, Mr. Butner and we have Andy Slavitt here to help us figure out how their approach can help other schools. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, Superintendent, just quickly, um, I I am not in any way trying to be disrespectful here, but we've always known that if you couldn't test the kids on a regular basis, you weren't going to be able to have any degree of confidence. Why didn't that message resonate up to create an urgency to help you scale testing from the top down? Well, Chris, the message has been there since March. The head of the World Health Organization gave us the answer. Test, 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 as you said so eloquently. And we've put together 
a plan with three parts. The first is health practices, so the cleaning, the social distancing, keeping students in small cohorts, and all of the state-of-the-art health practices at schools. And we will test for the virus, and we'll be able to trace and follow up in the school community. And to do that, we put together three world-class research universities, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA. Three health partners, Anthem, HealthNet, Cedar sinai world-class hospital, two innovative labs, a tech giant, Microsoft, and a partridge in a pear tree. We brought together the best team possible to do this at schools because, as you said, we have to be able to provide information to people so that we can control and isolate the virus. That's the only way back to schools. We all want students and teachers back in schools in the safest way possible, and this is that way. Andy, you've been saying this. Um in one way or another, the entire time we've been dealing with this, every time the issue of schools and frankly, any community activity comes up. Why is it taking so long? Well, we've used the, the, the testing capacity that we've created that we should have been using for schools for people going to bars, for people getting sick, for, for people doing the activities they wanted to do over the summer. And we didn't make the sacrifice and the, uh, and the, and the task force took about a month and a half off. So if we had actually decided, you know what, we're going to prioritize schools, do what the superintendent wants to do as the most important thing, and we chose that, then we, and we would have been able to have enough, enough testing so that we would have been able to open on time much more safely. But that would have required us uh, not allowing people to get back to places of business, which would have uh, forced a lot of economic pain. You know, and in in sometimes in a pandemic, you have to choose the least bad option. Uh, no one ever promised us we could have everything we wanted. You know, the debate we could have had was, you know, what are the things that can be open? And I think we know small businesses can be open. I think we know that certain offices can be open. We, people can be outside. But certain things like bars um, create hotspots. And I think there was a very much of a trade-off that we were unwilling to make or at least unwilling to discuss that if we had chosen differently and we should choose differently now, um, we'd get better results for schools. Or if we'd all been on the same page from the beginning that you're going to stay home you're going to mask up when you go out. You're going to be hygiene crazy for this amount of weeks. Then we would have been in a different case flow situation. There's a lot of research out there to, uh, to um, suggest just that. So, Superintendent, um, what will it mean now for you? If you get all the testing capacity that you want, will kids be able to go back to school five days a week full time? So what we're doing, and we, we wish at the federal level, the tools and resources were provided. We've had to provide for ourselves. We have secured testing capacity. We've found, brought in the experts. What this will do is get us back in the safest manner possible and as importantly, keep students in school because we have the ability to isolate a case were it to occur. We've all seen the examples in Indiana somewhere, a middle school, someone's identified with the virus. Nobody knows who, where, how, or where it came from or who else in the school might have it. By lunchtime, everybody's gone home and the school becomes a haunted house. So it's not just a question of how we get back. It's a question of how we keep students and teachers in schools in the safest manner possible. And this program will allow us to do that. Well, Superintendent, thank you very much. We'll keep up with you, uh, find out what's working, what isn't, uh, because frankly, we're lost on this. Uh, you know, this is not a pocketed problem. You're going to have economic opportunity and you're going to have education opportunity gaps expand because of this. Um, but Slavit, me, 
You were all in the same bucket in this. Nobody's kids are where they want them to be or not with any degree of confidence. Superintendent Butner, good luck. Andy Slavitt, I got to hand it to you. You've been saying testing and tracing. If we don't expand the capacity, if the federal government doesn't do what it could do to coax these companies into doing it, we're going to be stuck. And here we are. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us frame the reality. We'll be right back. Fact, too many of our kids are not in school and too many of us are dealing with this suck of homeschool Zooming, which gives you a chance to be back in school. The second largest school district in America says it has a plan to fix that. What's the plan? What do you think? Regular testing and tracing for all 700,000 students and 75,000 employees and their families. That's always been the only way we were going to get back there. If we don't know, we can't trust. If we can't trust, we're not putting our kids in that situation. We both know it. Not if we can avoid it. Austin Butner is the L.A. superintendent. We have um, Mr. Butner and we have Andy Slavitt here to help us figure out how their approach can help other schools. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, Superintendent, just quickly, um, I I am not in any way trying to be disrespectful here, but we've always known that if you couldn't test the kids on a regular basis, you weren't going to be able to have any degree of confidence. Why didn't that message resonate up to create an urgency to help you scale testing from the top down? Well, Chris, the message has been there since March. The head of the World Health Organization gave us the answer. Test, 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 as you said so eloquently. And we've put together a plan with three parts. The first is health practices, the cleaning, the social distancing, keeping students in small cohorts, and all of the -the state-of-the-art health practices at schools. And we will test for the virus, and we'll be able to trace and follow up in the school community. And to do that, we put together three world-class research universities, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA. Three health partners, Anthem, HealthNet, Cedars-Sinai World-Class Hospital, two innovative labs, a tech giant, Microsoft, and a partridge in a pear tree. We brought together the best team possible to do this at schools because as you said, we have to be able to provide information to people so that we can control and isolate the virus. That's the only way back to schools. We all want students and teachers back in schools in the safest way possible, and this is that way. Andy, you've been saying this um, in one way or another the entire time we've been dealing with this, every time the issue of schools and, frankly, any community activity comes up. Why is it taking so long? Well, we've used the, the, the testing capacity that we've created that we should have been using for schools for people going to bars, for people getting sick, for, for people doing the activities they wanted to do over the summer. And we didn't make the sacrifice, and the, uh, and, the, and the task force took about a month and a half off. So if we had actually decided, you know what, we're going prior- to prioritize schools, do what the superintendent it wants to do as the most important thing, and we chose that, then we, and we would have been able to have enough, enough, t- enough testing so that we would have been able to open on time much more safely. But that would have required us on not allowing people to get back to places of business, which would have uh, forced a lot of economic pain. You know, and sometimes in a pandemic, you have to choose the least bad option. Uh, No one ever promised us we could have everything we wanted. You know, the debate we could have had was, you know, what are the things that can be open? And I think we know small businesses can be open. I think we know that certain offices can be open. People can be outside. But certain things like bars um, create hotspots. And I think there was a very much of a trade-off 
that we were unwilling to make or at least unwilling to discuss that if we had chosen differently and we should choose differently now, um, we'd get better results for schools. Or if we'd all been on the same page from the beginning that you're going to stay home, you're going to mask up when you go out, you're going to be hygiene crazy for this amount of weeks, then we would have been in a different case flow situation. There's a lot of research out there to, uh, to um, suggest just that. So, Superintendent, um, what will it mean now for you? If you get all the testing capacity that you want, will kids be able to go back to school five days a week full time? So what we're doing, and we, we wish at the federal level the tools and resources were provided. We've had to provide for ourselves. We have secured testing capacity. We've found, brought in the experts. What this will do is get us back in the safest manner possible, and as importantly, keep students in school because we have the ability to isolate a case were it to occur. We've all seen the examples in Indiana somewhere, a middle school, someone's identified with the virus, Nobody knows who, where, how, or where it came from, or who else in the school might have it. By lunchtime, everybody's gone home, and the school becomes a haunted house. So it's not just a question of how we get back. It's a question of how we keep students and teachers in schools in the safest manner possible. And this program will allow us to do that. Well, Superintendent, thank you very much. We'll keep up with you, uh, find out what's working, what isn't, uh, because, frankly, we're lost on this. Uh, you know, this is not a pocketed problem. You're going to have economic opportunity and you're going to have education opportunity gaps expand because of this. Um, but Slavit, me, you, we're all in the same bucket in this. Nobody's kids are where they want them to be. We're not with any degree of confidence. Superintendent Butner, good luck. Andy Slavitt, I got to hand it to you. You've been saying testing and tracing, if we don't expand the capacity, if the federal government doesn't do what it could do to coax these companies into doing it, we're going to be stuck. And here we are. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us frame the reality. We'll be right back. All right, reality, okay? That's what we're going through tonight about this. The testing isn't there. That's why our kids aren't in school. We got to stay on it. We got to do better because kids are going to lose too much time. I don't know how they get that back. This election, what matters to me is will it be a fair process? The president is hitting with you with something that I can disprove to you right now. OK, he says 80 million unsolicited ballots are going to be uh, sent out. He has warned about it at least 20 times this month. That 80 million number is actually the number of voters across 41 states who must request their ballot by mail and are expected to do so in several of those states, you still need an acceptable non-COVID excuse. That's that number. Not what he said. It is the opposite of unsolicited. It must be solicited. Nine states plus Washington, D.C. do send unsolicited ballots. That adds up to some 43 million voters. Half the number POTUS claims. Now, where could the president's campaign of dissuasion lead you? Who better to ask than top Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsburg? Sound familiar? Represented George W. Bush in the famous slash infamous 2000 Florida recount. Counselor, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. You know this stuff. What's your concern of the rhetoric and the reality? The rhetoric is a problem. We've never had a president of the United States 
who has called our elections rigged and fraudulent. I, I've been working uh, precincts and, and national uh, election day operations for 38 years. And the evidence to back up a claim that our elections are rigged or fraudulent simply is not there. And that has a pernicious influence on people accepting the credibility of the results. Popular acceptance of the results is a pillar, the bedrock of the democracy. So it's dangerous to make sweeping allegations like that without evidence. One step sideways, and then I want to ask you about um, the concerns of the process specifically. Do you think that we will have a prediction of a winner on November 3rd. I say a prediction because Ben knows this, but just to make you aware at home, we never know the winner on election night. That doesn't happen until a couple of weeks after when the electors go and make their count. We do a prediction based on what we know from the exit polls. Do you think we will have that this election on November 3rd? Only under some circumstances. The uh, number of absentee ballots, the 80 million, that are going to come in means that the count will be delayed in most states. But there are some bellwether states who will get results, historically have gotten results pretty quickly on election night. If Joe Biden is winning Florida, and Florida is one of those states that does process its absentee ballots quickly, then you're going to have a pretty clear outcome on election night. If Donald Trump is winning New Hampshire or Minnesota or Nevada, the states that Hillary Clinton won narrowly, then that's a pretty good indicator of, of what the final result is. It's going to be so tight, Ben. I don't think it's going to be good enough. Um, but I take your counsel on it, obviously. Um, and that's why I asked you the question. The process. Um, Trump's main salvo and his supporters or surrogates is, man, it's mail-in ballot. How do you know who even sent it in? How do you even know? I mean, it's so easy to cheat. And then you could just show up at the ballot and, and vote a second time. And maybe you'll even try that because the president told you to. Um, but it's hard to secure it this way. Yeah, it is. But the states have all worked out mechanisms on their votes. Again, we Republicans and the Democrats have well, as well have been looking for fraudulent and rigged elections for the last 40 years. And the evidence is simply not there that absentee ballotings aren't accurate. Uh, a number of the states that use universal ballots uh, actually have minimal instances of, of reported fraud. So again, if you're going to make the sweeping allegations, you have to have the evidence, and the evidence isn't there for that. You worried that Republicans won't vote by mail-in ballot because just like with masks, the president has kind of made them taboo? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's sort of a self-defeating strategy, really. I mean, Republican voters look to be about a third as likely to, to submit absentee ballots. Absentee ballots are a wily political operative's dream. Their votes in the bank. In normal circumstances, you want your people to participate through absentee ballots because then there's less of a turnout operation on, on election day. It's why you see a number of Republican state parties and campaigns sort of countermanding the president's rhetoric and telling their supporters to actually vote by absentee. Ben Ginsburg. I'd love to have you back because this is becoming uh, an issue to watch all the way through, if for no other reason than toxic suge suggestion from the top. So we have to keep the facts and the reality straight for people. Uh, I would very much appreciate your help in doing so. And good luck to you Happy and the to family. Do it. Thanks, Chris. Stay healthy. I'll speak to you soon. All right, let's take a Thank quick you. break. 
fact. Too many of our kids are not in school, and too many of us are dealing with this suck of homeschool Zooming, which gives you a chance to be back in school. The second largest school district in America says it has a plan to fix that. What's the plan? What do you think? Regular testing and tracing for all 700,000 students and 75,000 employees and their families. That's always been the only way we were going to get back there. If we don't know, we can't trust. If we can't trust, we're not putting our kids in that situation. We both know it. Not if we can avoid it. Austin Butner is the L.A. superintendent. We have um, Mr. Butner and we have Andy Slavitt here to help us figure out how their approach can help other schools. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, Superintendent, just quickly, um, I I am not in any way trying to be disrespectful here, but we've always known that if you couldn't test the kids on a regular basis, you weren't going to be able to have any degree of confidence. Why didn't that message resonate up to create an urgency to help you scale testing from the top down? Well, Chris, the message has been there since March. The head of the World Health Organization gave us the answer, test, 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 as you said so eloquently. And we've put together a plan with three parts. The first is health practices, the cleaning, the social distancing, keeping students in small cohorts, and all of the -the state-of-the-art health practices at schools. And we will test for the virus, and we'll be able to trace and follow up in the school community. And to do that, We put together three world-class research universities, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA. Three health partners, Anthem, HealthNet, Cedars-Sinai, world-class hospital, two innovative labs, a tech giant, Microsoft, and a partridge in a pear tree. We brought together the best team possible to do this at schools because, as you said, we have to be able to provide information to people so that we can control and isolate the virus. That's the only way back to schools. We all want students and teachers back in schools in the safest way possible, and this is that way. Andy, you've been saying this um, in one way or another the entire time we've been dealing with this, every time the issue of schools and, frankly, any community activity comes up. Why is it taking so long? Well, we've used the, the, the testing capacity that we've created that we should have been using for schools for people going to bars, for people getting sick, for, for people doing the activities they wanted to do over the summer. And we didn't make the sacrifice, and the, uh, and, the, and the task force took about a month and a half off. So if we had actually decided, you know what, we're going to prioritize schools, do what the superintendent wants to do as the most important thing, and we chose that, then we, and we would have been able to have enough, enough testing so that we would have been able to open on time much more safely. But that would have required us uh, not allowing people to get back to places of business, which would have uh, forced a lot of economic pain. You know, and in in sometimes in a pandemic, you have to choose the least bad option. Uh, no one ever promised us we could have everything we wanted. You know, the debate we mm. could have had was, you know, what are the things that can be open? And I think we know small businesses can be open. I think we know that certain offices can be open. We, people can be outside. But certain things like bars um, create hotspots. And I think there was a very much of a trade-off that we were unwilling to make, or at least unwilling to discuss, that if we had chosen differently and we should choose differently now, um, we'd get better results for schools. Or if we'd all been on the same page from the beginning that you're going to stay home, you're going to mask up when you go out, you're going to be hygiene crazy for this amount of weeks, then we would have been in a different case flow situation. There's a lot of research out there to, uh, to um, suggest just that. So, Superintendent, um, What will it mean now for you? If you get all the testing capacity that you want, 
Will kids be able to go back to school five days a week full time? So what we're doing, and we, we wish at the federal level the tools and resources were provided. We've had to provide for ourselves. We have secured testing capacity. We've found, brought in the experts. What this will do is get us back in the safest manner possible and as importantly, keep students in school because we have the ability to isolate a case were it to occur. We've all seen the examples in Indiana somewhere, a middle school, someone's identified with the virus, nobody knows who, where, how, or where it came from or who else in the school might have it. By lunchtime, everybody's gone home and the school becomes a haunted house. So it's not just a question of how we get back, it's a question of how we keep students and teachers in schools in the safest manner possible. And this program will allow us to do that. Well, Superintendent, thank you very much. We'll keep up with you, uh, find out what's working, what isn't, uh, because frankly, we're lost on this. Uh, you know, this is not a pocketed problem. You're going to have economic opportunity and you're going to have education opportunity gaps expand because of this. Um, but Slavit, me, you, we're all in the same bucket in this. Nobody's kids are where they want them to be or not with any degree of confidence. Superintendent Butner, good luck. Andy Slavitt, I got to hand it to you. You've been saying testing and tracing, if we don't expand the capacity, if the federal government doesn't do what it could do to coax these companies into doing it, we're going to be stuck. And here we are. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us frame the reality. We'll be right back. All right. Reality. Okay, that's what we're going through tonight about this. The testing isn't there. That's why our kids aren't in school. We got to stay on it. We got to do better because kids are going to lose too much time. I don't know how they get that back. This election, what matters to me is will it be a fair process? The president is hitting with you with something that I can disprove to you right now. Okay, he says 80 million unsolicited ballots are going to be uh, sent out. He has warned about it at least 20 times this month. That 80 million number is actually the number of voters across 41 states who must request their ballot by mail and are expected to do so. In several of those states, you still need an acceptable non-COVID excuse. That's that number. Not what he said. It is the opposite of unsolicited. It must be solicited. Nine states plus Washington, D.C. do send unsolicited ballots. That adds up to some 43 million voters. Half the number POTUS claims. Now, where could the president's campaign of dissuasion lead you? Who better to ask than top Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsburg? Sound familiar? Represented George W. Bush in the famous slash infamous 2000 Florida recount. Counselor, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. You know this stuff. What's your concern of the rhetoric and the reality? The rhetoric is a problem. We've never had a president of the United States who has called our elections rigged and fraudulent. I, I've been working uh, precincts and, and national uh, election day operations for 38 years. And the evidence to back up a claim that our elections are rigged or fraudulent simply is not there. And that has a pernicious influence on people accepting the credibility of the results. Popular acceptance of the results is a pillar, the bedrock, 
of the democracy. So it's dangerous to make sweeping allegations like that without evidence. One step sideways, and then I want to ask you about um, the concerns of the process specifically. Do you think that we will have a prediction of a winner on November 3rd? I say a prediction because Ben knows this, but just to make you aware at home, we never know the winner on election night. That doesn't happen until a couple of weeks after when the electors go and make their count. We do a prediction based on what we know from the exit polls. Do you think we will have that this election on November 3rd? Only under some circumstances. The uh, number of absentee ballots, the 80 million that are going to come in, means that the count will be delayed in most states. But there are some bellwether states who will get results, historically have gotten results pretty quickly on election night. If Joe Biden is winning Florida, and Florida is one of those states that does process its absentee ballots quickly, then you're, you're going to have a pretty clear outcome on election night. If Donald Trump is winning New Hampshire or Minnesota or Nevada, the states that Hillary Clinton won narrowly, then that's a pretty good indicator of, of what the final result is. It's going to be so tight, Ben. I don't think it's going to be good enough. Um, but I take your counsel on it, obviously. Um, and that's why I asked you the question. The process. Um, Trump's main salvo and his supporters or surrogates is, man, it's mail-in ballot. How do you know who even sent it in? How do you even know? I mean, it's so easy to cheat. And then you could just show up at the ballot and, and vote a second time. And maybe you'll even try that because the president told you to. Um, but it's hard to secure it this way. Yeah, it is. But the states have all worked out mechanisms on their votes. Again, we Republicans and the Democrats have well, as well have been looking for fraudulent and rigged elections for the last 40 years. And the evidence is simply not there that absentee ballotings aren't accurate. Uh, a number of the states that use universal ballots uh, actually have minimal instances of, of reported fraud. So again, if you're going to make the sweeping allegations, you have to have the evidence and the evidence isn't there for that. You worry that Republicans won't vote by mail-in ballot because just like with masks, the president has kind of made them taboo? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's sort of a self-defeating strategy, really. I mean, Republican voters look to be about a third as likely to, to submit absentee ballots. Absentee ballots are a wily political operative's dream. Their votes in the bank. In normal circumstances, you want your people to participate through absentee ballots because then there's less of a turnout operation on, on election day. It's why you see a number of Republican state parties and campaigns sort of countermanding the president's rhetoric and telling their supporters to actually vote by absentee. Ben Ginsburg. I'd love to have you back because this is becoming uh, an issue to watch all the way through, if for no other reason than toxic suge suggestion from the top. So we have to keep the facts and the reality straight for people. Uh, I would very much appreciate your help in doing so. And good luck to you Happy and the to family. Do it. Thanks, Chris. Stay healthy. I'll speak to you soon. All right, let's take a Thank quick you. break. An historic legal settlement in the wrongful death of Breonna Taylor. The 26-year-old EMT was killed in March, you may remember, during a botched police raid at her apartment. So what's the settlement? Settlement's about money in one part. The city is going to pay her family $12 million. Louisville will also 
launch sweeping police reforms. But the question becomes, what does this mean in terms of what is solved? Listen. As significant as today is, it's only the beginning of getting full justice for Brianna. It's time to move forward with the criminal charges because she deserves that and much more. Her beautiful spirit and personality is working through all of us on the ground. So please continue to say her name. Ben Crump, Lenita Baker are the Taylor family's attorneys. Counselors, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Counselor Baker, um, what today, does today mean, tell the audience that this civil settlement does not preclude criminal action, but what is your concern? Uh, it is. It, it's important that people know that while we resolved the wrongful death lawsuit, uh, which included sweeping reform that was very important to Breonna Taylor's family. It's also equally important that the officers are held liable. And in Kentucky, there is a sufficient evidence for this grand jury to return an indictment for nothing less than second-degree manslaughter. And I say nothing less because there may be evidence that I've not been privy to that warrants a higher charge. And if there is a higher char charge, we demand those. But at a minimum, what the public has been had access to uh, there's sufficient evidence for a grand jury to return an indictment for the reckless behavior of the officers leading to the death that is second degree manslaughter. Councilor Crump, uh, as uh, we both know, uh, there is nothing in this settlement of any admission of wrongdoing, even though it's a wrongful death suit by the police. It is a settlement, meaning we're not going to say we did anything wrong, but let's settle it. It is unusual for a civil settlement to come after, uh, to come before a prosecution of any kind. Uh, this is a little unusual in terms of timing. What does this mean to you, Councilor Crump? Well, Chris, I think this was a landmark uh, step towards getting justice for Breonna Taylor. It's not just about the $12 million historic settlement, which I believe is one of the highest ever paid out for a black woman in a wrongful death police shooting in America. And it helps the precedence to say that black women's life matter too. And that's very important, Chris, but it's equally important about the reform because Breonna Taylor's mother really wanted this settlement to be about trying to prevent another Breonna Taylor for happening in the future because you and I talk too much about this pandemic that we live in in black America, where the police are killing black people unjustifiably. Councilor Baker, uh, reforms. Uh, reform is a word that on its face means nothing. It's all about what it is and how it will be. Um, there's a little bit of an irony here that police reform led to the type of targeting of different neighborhoods and targets uh, that led police to target where Breonna Taylor was. Um, so reform isn't always a remedy. What will be reformed here, and do you believe it is a remedy? Uh, it, it's definitely not sufficient. It, it's sufficient for what we uh, wanted to do here today, but we definitely recognize that additional reform uh, for uh, our criminal justice system is necessary and still needed, and we intend to continue to work towards that reform. But the reforms that we were able to get in this case included community policing initiatives, encouraging police officers to live within the communities that they um, patrol. Um, also, 
dispatching social workers when uh, respondents have been on health crisis so that we don't have police officers responding to situations where mental health professionals are needed. We also uh, have accountability reform measures. So looking at early warning systems that will let uh, the inspect office of the inspector general, which is being created, uh, be able to identify officers with red flags, officers who may be a, a detriment to our community and taking action in regards to those early warning systems. Mm. And uh, we also did a sweeping overhaul of the way that uh, search warrants are approved. They seek judicial, appro uh, judicial approval as well and the way that they're executed so that we don't have another situation. And one of the reforms, I'm, I'm not sure if you said it, because uh, I know you guys are in a restaurant, you're, you're going to be with the Taylor family, uh, and I appreciate you taking time out uh, in that venue, and we're hearing you just fine, so thank you very much. But one of them, of the reforms, is the city must track police use of force incidents and citizen complaints. It is mind-boggling that we really don't even track this kind of activity in so many different places, let alone the local level, uh, that may prove to be very meaningful. Um, thank you very much for taking the time on, as Benjamin Crump points out, an historic occasion uh, in terms of what this settlement may mean for women of color who found themselves uh, at this end of policing. But it's not the end. And it is unusual to have a civil settlement come before you got resolution on the criminal side. What will that mean about what does or does not happen going forward? We'll stay on it. Thank you to Ben Crump and Lenita Baker. We'll be right back. Fact. Too many of our kids are not in school. And too many of us are dealing with this suck of homeschool Zooming, which gives you a chance to be back in school. The second largest school district in America says it has a plan to fix that. What's the plan? What do you think? regular testing and tracing for all 700,000 students and 75,000 employees and their families. That's always been the only way we were going to get back there. If we don't know, we can't trust. If we can't trust, we're not putting our kids in that situation. We both know it. Not if we can avoid it. Austin Butner is the L.A. superintendent. We have um, Mr. Butner and we have Andy Slavitt here to help us figure out how their approach can help other schools. Gentlemen, thank you. Um, Superintendent, ju just quickly, um, I, I am not in any way trying to be disrespectful here, but we've always known that if you couldn't test the kids on a regular basis, you weren't going to be able to have any degree of confidence. Why didn't that message resonate up to create an urgency to help you scale testing from the top down? Well, Chris, the message has been there since March. The head of the World Health Organization gave us the answer, test, 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 as you said so eloquently. And we've put together a plan with three parts. The first is health practices, the cleaning, the social distancing, keeping students in small cohorts, and all of the state-of-the-art health practices at schools. And we will test for the virus, and we'll be able to trace and follow up in the school community. And to do that, we put together three world-class research universities, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, and UCLA. Three health partners, Anthem, HealthNet, Cedars-Sinai, world-class hospital, two innovative labs, a tech giant, Microsoft, and a partridge in a pear tree. We brought together the best team possible to do this at schools because as you said, we have to be able to provide information to people so that we can control and isolate the virus. That's the only way back to schools. We all want students and teachers back in schools in the safest way possible, and this is that way. Andy, you've been saying this um, 
in one way or another the entire time we've been dealing with this, every time the issue of schools and, frankly, any community activity comes up. Why is it taking so long? Well, we've used the, the, the testing capacity that we've created that we should have been using for schools for people going to bars, for people getting sick, for, for people doing the activities they wanted to do over the summer. And we didn't make the sacrifice, and the, uh, and the, and the task force took about a month and a half off. So if we had actually decided, you know what, we're going to prioritize schools, do what the superintendent it wants to do as the most important thing, and we chose that, then we, and we would have been able to have enough, enough, t enough testing so that we would have been able to open on time much more safely. But that would have required us uh, not allowing people to get back to places of business, which would have uh, forced a lot of economic pain. You know, and in in sometimes in a pandemic, you have to choose the least bad option. Uh, no one ever promised us we could have everything we wanted. You know, the debate we could have had was, you know, what are the things that can be open? And I think we know small businesses can be open. I think we know that certain offices can be open. We, people can be outside. But certain things like bars um, create hotspots. And I think there was a very much of a trade-off that we were unwilling to make or at least unwilling to discuss that if we had chosen differently and we should choose differently now, um, we'd get better results for schools. Or if we'd all been on the same page from the beginning that you're going to stay home, you're going to mask up when you go out, you're going to be hygiene crazy for this amount of weeks, then we would have been in a different case flow situation. There's a lot of research out there to, uh, to um, suggest just that. So, Superintendent, um, what will it mean now for you? If you get all the testing capacity that you want, will kids be able to go back to school five days a week full time? So what we're doing, and we, we wish at the federal level the tools and resources were provided. We've had to provide for ourselves. We have secured testing capacity. We've found, brought in the experts. What this will do is get us back in the safest manner possible, and as importantly, keep students in school because we have the ability to isolate a case were it to occur. We've all seen the examples in Indiana somewhere, a middle school, someone's identified with the virus, Nobody knows who, where, how, or where it came from, or who else in the school might have it. By lunchtime, everybody's gone home and the school becomes a haunted house. So it's not just a question of how we get back, it's a question of how we keep students and teachers in schools in the safest manner possible. And this program will allow us to do that. Well, Superintendent, thank you very much. We'll keep up with you, uh, find out what's working, what isn't, uh, because frankly, we're lost on this. Uh, you know, this is not a pocketed problem. You're going to have economic opportunity and you're going to have education opportunity gaps expand because of this. Um, but Slavit, me, you, we're all in the same bucket in this. Nobody's kids are where they want them to be. We're not with any degree of confidence. Superintendent Butner, good luck. Andy Slavitt, I got to hand it to you. You've been saying testing and tracing. If we don't expand the capacity, if the federal government doesn't do what it could do to coax these companies into doing it, we're going to be stuck. And here we are. Gentlemen, thank you for helping us frame the reality. We'll be right back. All right, reality, okay? That's what we're going through tonight about this. The testing isn't there. That's why our kids aren't in school. We got to stay on it. We got to do better because kids are going to lose too much time. I don't know how they get that back. This election, what matters to me is will it be a fair process? The president is hitting with you with something that I can disprove to you right now. OK, he says 80 million unsolicited ballots are going to be uh, sent out. He has warned about it at least 20 times this month. That 80 million number 
is actually the number of voters across 41 states who must request their ballot by mail and are expected to do so. In several of those states, you still need an acceptable non-COVID excuse. That's that number. Not what he said. It is the opposite of unsolicited. It must be solicited. Nine states plus Washington, D.C. do send unsolicited ballots. That adds up to some 43 million voters. Half the number POTUS claims. Now, where could the president's campaign of dissuasion lead you? Who better to ask than top Republican election lawyer Ben Ginsburg? Sound familiar? Represented George W. Bush in the famous slash infamous 2000 Florida recount. Counselor, good to see you. Good to see you, Chris. You know this stuff. What's your concern of the rhetoric and the reality? The rhetoric is a problem. We've never had a president of the United States who has called our elections rigged and fraudulent. I've been working uh, precincts and and national uh, election day operations for 38 years. And the evidence to back up a claim that our elections are rigged or fraudulent simply is not there. And that has a pernicious influence on people accepting the credibility of the results. Popular acceptance of the results is a pillar, the bedrock of the democracy. So it's dangerous to make sweeping allegations like that without evidence. One step sideways, and then I want to ask you about um, the concerns of the process specifically. Do you think that we will have a prediction of a winner on November 3rd? I say a prediction because Ben knows this, but just to make you aware at home, we never know the winner on election night. That doesn't happen until a couple of weeks after when the electors go and make their count. We do a prediction based on what we know from the exit polls. Do you think we will have that this election on November 3rd? Only under some circumstances. The uh, number of absentee ballots, the 80 million that are going to come in, means that the count will be delayed in most states. But there are some bellwether states who will get results, historically have gotten results pretty quickly on election night. If Joe Biden is winning Florida, and Florida is one of those states that does process its absentee ballots quickly, then you're going to have a pretty clear outcome on election night. If Donald Trump is winning New Hampshire or Minnesota or Nevada, the states that Hillary Clinton won narrowly, then that's a pretty good indicator of of what the final result is going to be so tight, Ben. I don't think it's going to be good enough. Um, But I take your counsel on it, obviously. um, That's why I asked you the question. The process. Um, Trump's main salvo and his supporters or surrogates is, man, mail-in ballot. How do you know who even sent it in? How do you even know? I mean, it's so easy to cheat. And then you can just show up at the ballot and and vote a second time. And maybe you'll even try that because the president told you to. Um, But it's hard to secure it this way. Yeah, it is. But the states have all worked out mechanisms on their votes. Again, we Republicans and the Democrats as well well, have been looking for fraudulent and rigged elections for the last 40 years. And the evidence is simply not there that absentee ballotings aren't accurate. Uh, A number of the states that use universal ballots 
uh, actually have minimal instances of, of reported fraud. So again, if you're going to make the sweeping allegations, you have to have the evidence, and the evidence isn't there for that. You worry that Republicans won't vote by mail-in ballot because just like with masks, the president has kind of made them taboo? Yeah, I, I, it's, it's sort of a self-defeating strategy, really. I mean, Republican voters look to be about a third as likely to, to submit absentee ballots. Absentee ballots are a wily political operative's dream. They're votes in the bank. In normal circumstances, you want your people to participate through absentee ballots because then there's less of a turnout operation on, on election day. It's why you see a number of Republican state parties and campaigns sort of countermanding the president's rhetoric and telling their supporters to actually vote by absentee. Ben Ginsburg, I'd love to have you back because this is becoming uh, an issue to watch all the way through, if for no other reason than toxic suggestion from the top. So we have to keep the facts and the reality straight for people. Uh, I would very much appreciate your help in doing so. And good luck to you Happy and the family. To do it. Thanks, Stay Chris. healthy. I'll speak to you soon. All right, let's take a Thank quick you. break. An historic legal settlement in the wrongful death of Breonna Taylor. The 26-year-old EMT was killed in March, you may remember, during a botched police raid at her apartment. So what's the settlement? Settlement's about money in one part. The city is going to pay her family $12 million. Louisville will also launch sweeping police reforms. But the question becomes, what does this mean in terms of what is solved? Listen. As significant as today is, it's only the beginning of getting full justice for Brianna. It's time to move forward with the criminal charges because she deserves that and much more. Her beautiful spirit and personality is working through all of us on the ground. So please continue to say her name. Ben Crump, Lenita Baker are the Taylor family's attorneys. Counselors, good to see you. Good to see you. Uh, Counselor Baker, um, what today, does today mean, tell the audience that this civil settlement does not preclude criminal action, but what is your concern? Uh, it is. It, it's important that people know that while we resolve the wrongful death lawsuit, uh, which included sweeping reform that was very important to Breonna Taylor's family. It's also equally important that the officers are held criminally liable. And in Kentucky, there is a sufficient evidence for this grand jury to return an indictment for nothing less than second-degree manslaughter. And I say nothing less because there may be evidence that I've not been privy to that warrants a higher charge. And if there is a higher char charge, we demand those. But at a minimum, what the public has been had access to. Uh, there's sufficient evidence for a grand jury to return an indictment for the reckless behavior of the officers leading to the death and that is second degree manslaughter. Councilor Crump, uh, as uh, we both know, uh, there is nothing in this settlement of any admission of wrongdoing, even though it's a wrongful death suit by the police. It is a settlement, meaning we're not going to say we did anything wrong, but let's settle it. It is unusual for a civil settlement to come after, uh, to come before a prosecution of any kind. Uh, this is a little unusual in terms of timing. What does this mean to you, Councilor Crump? Well, Chris, I think this was a landmark 
uh, step towards getting justice for Breonna Taylor. It's not just about the $12 million historic settlement, which I believe is one of the highest ever paid out for a black woman in a wrongful death police shooting in America. And it helps the precedence to say that black women's life matter too. And that's very important, Chris, but it's equally important about the reform because Breonna Taylor's mother really wanted this settlement to be about trying to prevent another Breonna Taylor for happening in the future because you and I talk too much about this pandemic that we live in in black America where the police are killing black people unjustifiably. Councilor Baker, uh, reforms. Uh, reform is a word that on its face means nothing. It's all about what it is and how it will be. Um, there's a little bit of an irony here that police reform led to the type of targeting of different neighborhoods and targets uh, that led police to target where Breonna Taylor was. Um, so reform isn't always a remedy. What will be reformed here and do you believe it is a remedy? Uh, it, it's definitely not sufficient. It, it's sufficient for what we uh, wanted to do here today, but we definitely recognize that additional reform uh, for uh, our criminal justice system is necessary and still needed, and we intend to continue to work towards that reform. But the reforms that we were able to get in this case included community policing initiatives, encouraging police officers to live within the communities that they uh, patrol. Um, also, dispatching social workers when uh, responding to mental health crises so that we don't have police officers responding to situations where mental health professionals are needed. We also uh, have accountability reform measures. So looking at early warning systems that will let uh, the inspect office of the inspector general, which is being created, uh, be able to identify officers with red flags, officers who may be a, a detriment to our community and taking action in regards to those early warning systems. Mm. And uh, we also did a sweeping overhaul of the way that uh, search warrants are approved. They seek judicial, appro uh, judicial approval as well and the way that they're executed so that we don't have another situation and one of the reforms I'm, I'm not sure if you said it because uh, I know you guys are in a restaurant you're, you're going to be with the Taylor family uh, and I appreciate you taking time out uh, in that venue and we're hearing you just fine so thank you very much but one of them of the reforms is the city must track police use of force incidents and citizen complaints it is mind-boggling that we really don't even track this kind of activity in so many different places, let alone the local level, uh, that may prove to be very meaningful. Um, thank you very much for taking the time on, as Benjamin Crump points out, an historic occasion uh, in terms of what this settlement may mean for women of color who found themselves uh, at this end of policing. But it's not the end. And it is unusual to have a civil settlement come before you got resolution on the criminal side. What will that mean about what does or does not happen going forward? We'll stay on it. Thank you to Ben Crump and Lenita Baker. We'll be right back. All right, best time of the night. Bringing in CNN tonight and it's big star D Lemon right now.
Right on, right on. How so, are you? So my response to Woodward making plain for everybody once again that this president knew what was going on with the pandemic, knew the risks, and he is playing to his own advantage, no matter what that means for the rest of us, to set the table on what the reality is in this country with the virus. I don't understand what's in question about that. He said it. I'm not you know, saying that you're wrong, but he said it himself. He's the one who said it. I downplayed it on purpose. But here's the problem. Yeah. He then said he upplayed it. Yeah, well. Which is, you know, as I said at the top of the show, he can't even make up the excuse to make sense. Well, I want to tell you, I got a bridge. It's called the Brooklyn Bridge. I own the rights to it. And I want to sell you that bridge, if you believe that. Hmm. Why are you doing you this job if you own that? <laughs> That's the whole point. I don't. But if, I, if you believe... That someone says something, he said, he said, I downplayed it. I knew that it was dangerous and I downplayed it. I knew how deadly and dangerous it was and I downplayed it. And then in the next breath, he says, I didn't downplay it. I upplayed it. So that means, what's the common word there? Played. Played. You're getting played. <laughs> That's the whole point of it. And I got to move on because I got, listen, I have so much to talk Do about. Do because, because the president just finished a town hall. Yep. So a lot of our viewers are going to be seeing this. Uh, for the first time, and I want to get to it so that they can hear how they were played or what the president said tonight. So I'll see you soon. Love you. I love you, D-Lemon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.